Good morning to everybody. Let me see some Bibles this morning. So, if it's your Bible, your iPod, your phone, whatever it is, a pew Bible, I want you to find Romans chapter 9. Find Romans 9 and we'll be there in just a moment. Now I want you to go back to your childhood. For some, you don't have to go back far because you're still in your childhood uh, if you're in here. Some of, some of our children are off in children's worship. But no matter what your age this morning, I want you to go back to your childhood. And I'm going to remind you of a couple of phrases that you said to your parents that you probably thought as a child, I hope I never hear my own kids say this, but you know that that's not the case. And so here are phrases that we have said as children to our parents at one time or another. Why? Or, but my parents, or so-and-so's parents, they don't do it that way, so why do we have to do it a certain way? Or here's a favorite one. John, is, are the screens working? Here we go. Here's my favorite one. Let's say this one together when it comes up, the last one. But that's not fair. Come on, we can say that better than that. But that's not fair. Parents, do you love when your kids say that? Be careful what you say because at some time or another, you probably said that one as well. Um, how often do we look at things in life and we say, life's not fair? Or we look at a certain situation and we think, you know, I, I really don't like that. Well, what about this? What about God? What if God isn't fair? Or what if God's definition of fairness is different than my own definition of fairness? Then what do we do? What if God plays favorites? Can we still trust him? I mean, these are all questions that as we look at Romans 9 this morning, and I'll be honest with you, this is one of those passages, if you've not studied it in a while, uh, I'm going to open up a can of worms this morning for you, and I'm probably going to have, you're probably going to have a whole lot more questions at the end of this lesson than maybe you have in a while. I don't know. Romans 9 is one of those passages that has been uh, contemplated back and forth by commentators over the years, and different people land different places on it. But all of those questions that I posed at the beginning those are questions sometimes that will pop up in our mind after reading a passage like Romans chapter 9. How many of you have ever read or studied in your, in your own time a portion of Scripture where you step back and think, ooh, oh, I don't know about that. Or, and again, when you say that, you're not questioning God as much as you're questioning yourself and wondering, wonder what God is really trying 
to say to me here? Or I wonder what God is really up to right now in this particular time in his life. And so before we move into the bulk of Romans 9, I want to paint this picture for you from Isaiah chapter 55, beginning in verse 8. For my thoughts, Isaiah says, are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That is Isaiah's way of helping us understand God is God and we are not. And that is something that we need to understand every day of our life. And so from that standpoint, because God is God, God can really do anything that he wants to do, right? If you go back last week to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that verse kind of opens up the theme of the sovereignty of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Here, in a nutshell, is what the sovereignty of God is all about. God's sovereignty says this, God can do whatever he wants to do. Because he's God. And so when you look at that, and then you look at our own life, what God calls us to is to take all the things that we do in life and lay them aside, and he wants us to trust his sovereign will. He wants us to trust that he knows best. And so as we move into the bulk of Romans 9 this morning, I wanted you to see that passage from Isaiah and be reminded of who God is and who we are and where we are in relation to God. You see, in the Apostle Paul's day, there were a lot of people who were wondering if God had somehow dropped the Israelites because so few of them had put their trust in Jesus as their Messiah. I like how one uh, author explained why this was such an issue to people back then. And he says it like this, he says, I want you to imagine a situation where a certain man is the founder and the owner of this large corporation. It's very profitable. And this man has a lot of children in his family, and he makes a general promise. And here's the general promise. My children will always have a seat on the board of directors of my company, and nobody but my children will have a place on the board of my directors, okay? That was a general promise that this particular man of a profitable organization said to his family. Now, we look at that today and think, you know, should, was it wise for him to say that? Was it wise for him to make that general promise? Because here's what happens. That's his promise, that's his word. Now, suppose this. Suppose that many years after making this promise, some of those who received this promise were not placed on the board of directors. While at the same time, this man went and he got people living on the streets and made them his board members. Now, you know where I'm going with this. Wouldn't it seem 
that he had not kept his word? Wasn't it unfair to place people from the streets on the board instead of those who had grown up in his own home and had his own family name? Well, imagine that. And then as we look at Romans 9 this morning, that imaginative situation is very similar to the real situation of the Israelites. Because Paul made clear that many Jews would not be included in God's promised blessings and that many Gentiles would be included. Now, depending on what side of the fence you're on, that just doesn't seem fair. I mean, that just doesn't seem right. How could God do that? And so to them it seemed that if this was the case, that God was being unfaithful and unfair. I mean, after all, God had promised that the descendants of Abraham would be the recipients of that blessing. And so in a sense, they felt that God owed them or was obligated to them. And so here's what happens. Paul leaves chapter 8 and he moves into chapter 9, 10, and 11. And he writes those three chapters for these reasons. To address and to explain that God is faithful, God is fair, and God really owes no one anything. Now before we read the passage, John, leave that up for just a moment. I want you to think about your own life this morning. And think about it in these terms. Has God been faithful to us as his children? Has God been fair? Has God been faithful? Has God been fair? And when you stop and think about it, does God really owe me anything? I mean, think about it. As we've come to this point in our little series on, in, in Romans, what we've seen is God had to step in at just the right time because we weren't good enough. God had to step in at just the right time because we weren't powerful enough to save ourselves. So we came to a point where we realized in order for me to be saved, in order for me to have this relationship with my creator, somebody has to do something. Somebody has to pay a price. At that point, we begin to realize our need for Jesus. We begin to realize our need for a Savior. Because after all, if we can save ourselves, do we need Jesus? No. But we come to terms and we come to grips to realize I am not good enough to save myself. And so I am in need of a Savior for my salvation. So listen to these words that Paul says in Romans chapter 9, and I'm going to start in verse 6 this morning and go down to about verse 18. Paul says, It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise 
who were regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. And yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, just as it is written. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? See, Paul asks the very question that we're just dying to ask, okay? Is God unjust? Or we would say, is God being fair here at this point? Well, the question, is God unjust? Paul says, not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's, what's the word, church? Mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, do you have a lot of questions now? So do I. And I wish this was a time where we could lay those questions out and and have some uh, talking back and forth, but that's not the case for just a few minutes. And so let me just kind of share some thoughts. And I'm going to tell you right now, I may be totally off on this or I may be totally in line. I don't know, but I'm trusting God's will to be done, whatever the case, okay? Because a lot of times when we study Scripture, here's the bottom line. We can study it all day long, and we may walk away, and you know what? We may all be wrong. But God's mercy is there for all of us to cover that. When you look at this Scripture, and you look at some of the examples that Paul puts out, it is obvious that, that people... Then and now, look at that and say, now no, wait a minute. Why, why did God predestine some of that beforehand when he, he didn't even know what's going to happen? Again, God's thoughts are what? God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's ways are higher than his ways. And so God knew before time. The story of Jacob and Esau. He knew before they were even born what the case was going to be. He knew that one was going to hunger and thirst, hunger and thirst after his will. And he also knew that the other was not going to have anything to do with him on a spiritual level. Now, from our position this morning, that is hard for us to grasp. That is hard for us to to understand but again you know what God knows what's going to happen in your life he knows what's going to happen in your walk with him right now he knows what's going to take place tomorrow and the next day and the next what we do right here 
is we can imagine or we can have the goal that we want to be closer to God tomorrow than we were today. Well, that's what we want, but does that necessarily always happen? You see, sometimes we don't make that choice. Sometimes we choose to go another direction. But Paul states it. Is God being unjust here? And as soon as he asks the question, what does he say? Not at all. In fact, when you look at that, um, here's how it's translated. Let me find this. God forbid, perish the thought. That's literally the translation that Paul is saying when he says, not at all. God forbid that. Perish the thought. He is totally fair and his justice is not tarnished by anything. So we have to trust in our own life that whatever happens will always turn out for our good. We have, we have to trust right here in a passage like this that whatever happens, it's God's plan. It is God's divine nature and his plan that it turns out the way that it does. Again, what is that an example of? That's an example of God being in control of something that we have no control over or ever will. Okay? Again, that's the sovereignty of God. He can do whatever he chooses to do. And so, a couple of questions that arise from that. If you go back and look, there's a couple of scriptures because the part that Paul says here is, has God's word failed? Verse 6. Has God's word just kind of dropped and no one really got that? And again, we look at that think, my goodness, how can a question be asked like that? Before you're too hard, maybe we have to understand, maybe we've asked a question like that before in our own journey with God. Numbers 23, 19 says it this way. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Isaiah 55, 11, So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Isn't that refreshing this morning? To understand that God's word, the moment it goes out, what's the promise? It will not return empty. There's power in the word of God. Every time we read a scripture, every time we study a scripture, every time we proclaim scripture, every time we read scripture to somebody else, maybe in a Bible study or something, we have to trust God's word is powerful to stand on its own. And so at that point, a lot of times we feel like, man, I've just got to explain this verse away. No, you don't. Leave room for God to work, and at that point, leave room for his Holy Spirit to plant those seeds. And what's the promise that Jesus says? The Spirit will come along, and it will convict people of their sin. God's word is powerful. 
So at just the time that you think that you are powerful, you really aren't. But God is all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He understands all of that. And so his word will not and cannot fail, which leads to two crucial questions. Is God free to do whatever he wants? And number two, is God fair in the way that he treats people? Well, the bottom line, when you look at a passage like this, God's purposes always promote his glory. Okay? Now think about that. His purposes always promote his glory even when we don't understand what he's doing. And the beautiful part of that is this. He is going to use you. He's going to use me. He's going to use all of his children to promote his glory. He wants to use all of us to be the ones to proclaim his message. Again, here is God's sovereignty. And at this point, you know what he's doing? He is inviting us as his very own to be a part of his sovereign plan. He's inviting us to be a part of his sovereign will. He's inviting us to be a part of that, and here's our role. You go be a proclaimer. Well, now, how can I go proclaim something that I don't completely understand? Is that possible, church? Yes, it is. Because, you know, there's a lot of things that we may not understand, but here's the key. Do you believe it? I hope and pray this morning that you say, yes, I believe it. I may not understand it. And you know what? At that point, it's not for us to even agree with it. Because God's sovereignty, it's not up for question. Okay? It's not. God's sovereignty means he has the final word. Now, when you think about your life and you think about his sovereign will over your life, don't you want God to have the final word over you? Don't you want God to have the final word over who you are? Yes, we do. And so even though we may not understand all of that, we are called to believe it. We are called to embrace that. And we are called to teach that God's will will be done no matter what because he can do whatever he likes because he's God and we're not you talk about fair look at his fairness look at the mercy that he showed to Moses look at the justice that he passed on to Pharaoh and, and then sometimes we look at that and say, okay, now wait a minute. Why did Moses and Pharaoh make the cut, but other men and women of faith didn't? I don't know. Right? I don't have the answer to that. But what I do know is God chose certain people here to be his instrument. He chose certain people at certain times 
to carry out his will. And we have to trust that because Moses and Pharaoh made the cut here, it's because God knows best. And he knew exactly why they needed to be there when they did. Now, we can look at that and say, was Moses a very likely candidate? Probably not, but God chose him. Were you a very likely candidate that God chose you? Well, now, wait, now we're getting personal, right? To that question, what do we say? You better say yes to that because he chose you because he loved you. He didn't choose you based on your good works or your good merits or any of those things. He chose you because he loved you. And you know what? Until Jesus comes back for his own, we will probably always struggle with that fact. Sometimes we just struggle with the fact of how God could do something like that for me. But he did. And aren't you glad that he did? Aren't you glad that God said, I want you on my team? You know what the bottom line is? God wants everybody on his team. But here's what happens. God chooses us, but you know what we have to do? We have to choose him, and we have to accept that calling. And again, we don't accept it based on, oh, I'm, I'm doing enough good things for you, Lord, or I, I'm going to do this one day, God. No, he wants us to choose that because we realize there's not another way other than to say, I need you. And so that's what we do. A lot of questions, a lot of thoughts. And I love the fact that he looks down and he places his power on display, the verse says, so that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Again, that's where you and I come in. That's where he's tapping us on the shoulder. And a lot of times we feel like Isaiah did at one point when he said, who am I? But then after the seraph came and touched his lip, he began to realize, wow, here am I, send me. And if all of us would answer that call because that's what God wants us to do is to realize he wants to use each one of us for his glory to proclaim to all the earth we're called to be proclaimed so last week we talked about how the score was settled this morning I want you to see this the case has been settled and here's the case. God is free to do whatever he wants to do. And the beautiful thing is, he wants to be free to do whatever he wants to do with you. Will you let him? Will you be the one to say, Lord, have your way with me? 
May your will be done in my life. I want to give you a couple of things that just stuck out at me as I surveyed this passage. Because it's easy to understand why people now say this is one of the most difficult chapters of the Bible. And I could spend hours on talking about this. But a couple of things that stands out. Number one, it humbles us by putting us in our proper place. And that is, salvation begins with God, not with us. Okay? So remember that. Number two, it glorifies God by putting Him in His rightful place as the ruler of the universe. Now again, there's some shocking statements in this passage But again, he shows mercy on whom he wants to show mercy and judgment on whom he wants to show judgment and God is going to be glorified no matter what. Number three, it challenges us to consider the basis of our relationship with God. What is my relationship with God really based on? Because just because you call yourself a Christian doesn't mean that you've been born again. Just because you go to church on Sunday and sit in a church pew doesn't mean that you're truly a child of God. Well, no, now, wait a minute. I mean, this is where I'm supposed to be. I didn't say that. But a lot of times we think, if I come to church, everything is going to be fine. If I'm here, everything is going to be A-OK. Coming to church doesn't take care of all of that. Coming to the realization and the point of saying, I need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that's where it begins. It's about relationship with the one who created us and the one whose son died for us on the cross. Again, salvation begins with God, not with us. Number four, it gives us assurance of salvation and eternal security. Here's the fact. God's mercy doesn't come to us because of what we've done, and therefore it cannot be lost because of something that we do. God's mercy is bigger than that. Number five, we won't accept God's mercy. We will not one day face his justice. If you want his justice, you've got to take his mercy. Turn to Romans 9, verse 33, and I want to close with this see I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame that's what we're called to do we're called to put our hope and our trust in the one who will never be put to shame. And when you do that, even though you may not understand everything about God, you realize He is the one that's in control of this world, and He's even in control of me. Now this morning, if anything is standing in the way, if you're letting something else control your life other than God... You need to think about that. Because God wants total control. He wants 
to be in charge of all of it. And so think about your own walk this morning and where you are. Are you trusting and believing in the power of God to use you the way he wants to be used? Let's stand as we sing this song this morning.